Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And there are many crusades, but today's topic, the Fourth Crusade from 1202 to 1204, was the least successful. Its aim was to take Jerusalem from the Muslim Turks who had seized it in 1187. But the result was an attack on Christian cities and a permanent divide between the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches. So clearly something went horribly, horribly wrong, and we're going to talk about what it was that went wrong today. So as far as the Crusades in general, they were rooted in both political and religious motives. The Byzantine Empire was threatened by the Seljuk Turks, and Pope Urban II agreed to endorse a war against them. This is the First Crusade, to both save the Christians who were supposedly being tortured and to save Jerusalem from the infidels. By saving Jerusalem, the Crusaders themselves would save their own souls. A win-win deal. And these were seen as defensive wars because the church was under attack. But of course, there's a lot more to it than that. And if you want a little more background, definitely check out an older episode recorded by Candace and Jane on the Crusades as a whole. You can get all the background information. And we've actually got a really good article on this, too. Yeah, um, by Molly Edmonds of Stuff Mom Never Told You, How the Crusades Worked. And uh, an important thing to remember that I got from her article, quote, many of the crusades would begin with a goal to reach the Holy Land, but would break down because of politics and warfare failure. Regardless, religion was always the primary trigger for a crusade. So remember that as we go along. So we have religion and we have politics, which go together like peanut butter and jelly. And like I said to Sarah earlier, a PBJ that blows up in your face. Sounds like a sandwich that is far too dangerous for my taste. But as we mentioned, Jerusalem is under the control of the Muslims. And the goal of the Fourth Crusade is to get it back. Sounds pretty simple, right? Pope Innocent III had been wanting a crusade of his own. We all want a crusade of our own. Yeah. (laughs) And the French answer is call. They would take part. They would make up the majority of the troops, and as their leader, they'll have an Italian count named Boniface Montferrat. The leaders of the crusade decide that the best way to recapture Jerusalem is to go by sea to Egypt and then invade from there. But they need a way to transport all of their men and all of their supplies by sea. They need help. And who is better at all things seaworthy than the Venetians? The Venetians. So they go to Venice, and they meet with the 90-year-old blind doge, Enrico Dandolo, who is in control of Venice. And the crusaders want ships. They want about 30,000 men to man them, and they want food. So the doge agrees in exchange for 85,000 marks, which is a ridiculously huge sum of money. But they agree because, after all, this is... For the, the holy land. Of God. Yeah, exactly. And the Venetians do the work. It takes up almost all of Venice's resources to build these ships and to man them and to stock them. But more than 30,000 crusaders are supposed to congregate in Venice. So it all work out because everybody will bring a little bit of money. They'll have enough men for all the ships. It'll and they'll be, all be together. They're all starting off in one group. Yeah, you can really stir up morale that way. So from there, they would proceed on their mission. But there's a problem. Only a third of the men show up because a lot of the troops had decided, well, we don't want to go all the way to Venice to meet with you guys. We're going to leave from our own port. Don't tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) So 
So the result is that there isn't enough money to pay Venice. And they have way too much stuff because they have supplies you know, for 30,000 people and they've only got 12,000. They can't go back home. It would be dishonorable. They've made this vow that they're going to do this religious thing. And they can't not pay the Venetians. They have a moral obligation to do so. How can we resolve this? Fortunately, the Doge makes them a pretty good offer. Attack the city of Zara, and we'll give you a little more time to pay up. We're not going to write off the debt, but you'll have more time to pay. So not that great of a deal. Yeah, actually, actually it's <laughs> kind of a bad deal, Doge. Zara was on the Dalmatian coast, and Venice basically had had control over it until the Hungarian king came along. But this presents a dilemma for the Crusaders. They need to pay their debt, but the Hungarian king is Christian, and under the Pope in Rome, too, not the uh, the Eastern version of the church. And he's a crusader, so attacking him is attacking one of their own. What can they do? Some refuse to attack, and others agree to it because it's for the good of the crusade as a whole. The ends justify the means. But <laughs> Pope Innocent III is not pleased and basically sends them a letter that says, Don't you dare. I will excommunicate you. But of course, the Pope's message only gets to the leadership, the knights who are in charge, and they neglect to pass it on to the common man, because obviously under the threat of excommunication, which is the heaviest punishment that the church can give someone, a lot of the army would fall apart. So they keep this information to themselves, and they attack, and they conquer, and the Pope excommunicates them all. Again, the leaders are the only ones who know that this has happened. They have all the information. They have all the power. So they don't even know that they're possibly damned. But meanwhile, there is a prince in exile whose ears have perked up at the news of what's going on in Zara. He is Alexius Angelos, and his father, Isaac II, had been emperor of Byzantium. But he had been deposed by his brother, Alexius III, who also ordered that his eyes be gouged out. Apparently, that was very... Classic Byzantium style. So our exiled prince, the rightful heir to the throne, goes to the leaders of the Fourth Crusade and offers them a deal. He will give them money and men to help them retake the Holy Land if they will come to Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, and help him take the throne back. And more importantly, he says that he will return what is now the Greek Orthodox Church to the rule of the Pope in Rome, this would be a huge coup. Maybe the Pope would stop being so mad at the Crusaders, and also they would have reunited the church. So as far as a religious mission goes, this is a worthy one. And the Doge supports the plan, too, because he's thinking of Venice's trade routes. And if Byzantium is an ally, they're in a pretty good place all of a sudden. So Boniface says, we're in. And a note on Constantinople, it is an incredibly rich city at the time, both in culture and in a actual cash money. They have the Hagia Sophia, for example, and founded by Constantine I in AD 330, it is the greatest city of the Middle Ages, certainly better than anything Europe has. They have, you know, the crown of thorns, relic, what do you have? And it's the perfect place for trade. It's right in between the East and the West. And my favorite detail from a New Yorker article by Joan Acocella, its ladies, watched over by 20,000 eunuchs, wore silk and jewels and white wigs. 
But it's not just the ladies who are well defended. The city is really well defended, too. In 900 years, no one has taken it. So this is the mark. We can imagine things are going to be pretty tough from here on out. And as far as this whole idea of going into Constantinople goes, some of the other crusaders are very unhappy because they're supposed to be going to Jerusalem. What does Constantinople have to do with anything? The hold up. Well, and it's this Christian city. Why are we even getting involved in what they're doing Perhaps we're missing the point. Regardless of what some people think, the Crusaders arrive in Constantinople in 1203, and they're here to seize the throne from Alexius III, return it to Isaac, who, he doesn't know this, but he's going to be co-ruling with his son, who will be crowned Alexius IV. And from there, they can pay off Venice, they can reunite the Eastern and Western churches, and hopefully, finally, be on their way to Jerusalem. The people of Constantinople honestly aren't all that interested in any of this. They're not perturbed with this change in rule. But Alexius III is. He puts up a fight and he loses. And during this fight, the Franks burn part of the city. Alexius IV has what he wanted, but the Venetians and the Franks do not. Alexius doesn't have the money that he promised, so he's forced to tax everyone. And he begins melting down icons to try to raise it. The citizens of Constantinople are not very happy. They're being taxed, their icons are being melted down, and their city is overrun by Franks, by crusaders who are running amok and trying to get what they can for themselves. So the Greeks hate the Franks. The Franks hate the Greeks. We're constantly having skirmishes, and Alexius IV's unpopularity catches up with him. He is murdered. Um, Isaac also mysteriously dies around the same time, possibly murdered as well. And Alexius V takes over. And Alexius V is not interested in paying Alexius IV's debts. He says, I don't have anything to do with this. You guys work it out yourselves. So that's it. The Venetians want their money, and the leaders of the crusade vow to fight. Now they see the Byzantines as an obstacle to be overcome. And their fight is justified, they say. They need to save the Greeks from their own orthodox selves and punish them for murdering their ruler, which isn't quite what this is about, but we'll let them have it. And again, Innocent III tells them in no uncertain terms not to do this. But of course, they do. For having your own crusade, this is really not going according to plan for Innocent. Nobody's listening to him. So the Crusaders and Alexius V's men fight, and the Greeks put up a really good fight this time. Alexius flees, though, and the fight still isn't over. This is in April 1204. Finally, the Crusaders lay siege to the city of Constantinople, and in three days, it's over. So this city that has not fallen in 900 years, it only takes three days to fall. The Crusaders sack the city, completely burn down parts of it, steal every piece of art they can find, every religious relic. The patriarchal library is burned and precious religious icons in the Hagia Sophia destroyed. But beyond the looting, the sacking of Constantinople is so notorious because it wasn't just about the theft and the violence. There were plenty of rapes and murders, but... The atmosphere was more like a big drunken party. It was jovial atmosphere. It was celebratory. They put a prostitute on the patriarch's throne in the Hagia Sophia and let her sing. They get drunk drinking out of chalices. This is the defilement of all that the people in Constantinople held sacred. So the Venetians claim their share of the loot, which is most of it, as part of their payment. Have they even 
fulfilled the debt entirely yet. I think they also got some islands. Yeah. Well, the Venetians come out okay, I guess. So this is why you can still find Byzantine art there. It's it's part of that payment for all of these ships and the men and the supplies. By the way, a lot of our knowledge about the sacking of Constantinople comes from a firsthand account from Nikitas Koniatis. So that's why some of these details about the prostitute singing from the throne are so vivid and so out of this world. So we started with this religious mission to, quote unquote, save Jerusalem, and we end with a prostitute on the patriarch's throne in Constantinople. How did we get here? And what's going to happen? Well, the aftermath is that the people of the Byzantine Empire have seen what the Latins can do, and they would rather take their chances with the Turks. The divide between what will be the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches is now permanent. This is known as the Great Schism or the East-West Schism, and it's still that way today. The sacking of Constantinople also marks the beginning of the end of the Byzantine Empire. It's this sophisticated, wealthy, culturally rich city, and it's never quite the same again. It suffered a very serious blow. Yeah, and it would be taken again, finally, falling to the Turks in 1453. So this crusade that begins to save the Holy Land ends with Islam winning the day in the East, ironically. Despite the complete and total failure of this crusade, no one seemed to learn from it because these missions to save the Holy Land went on for centuries. And it reminded me a lot of when we were talking about the Reformation and specifically the wars between the Catholics and the Huguenots, which seemed to be never ending. But compared to this, it's barely a drop in the bucket. I mean, these go on for centuries. It's ridiculous. And of course, while we're not still sailing with ships with our red crosses on our chests, religious wars are still going on today. Speaking of France and its religious wars, that brings us to our listener mail. Of course, the ultimate result of those religious wars is the rise of the Bourbon family. And our email today is from Samsonite who requests a podcast on the fabulous life of Madame du Pompadour. But he also includes a little tidbit on our podcast on who would have been the Nazi king and Wallace Simpson and the abdication crisis. He says, I was remembering a picture of the Duke and Duchess with my grandmother. She was a journalist for the Boston Globe, but later had to leave because she met my grandfather there and relationships were not allowed in the workplace. Sorry, Mad Men fans, that didn't work out. With the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, my grandparents met the socialites, movie stars, sports players, and entertainers of the day, from Catherine Hepburn to Judy Garland and JFK to Georgia O'Keeffe, who my grandfather said was horribly stuck up and terrible bore. We're not advocating this point of view. We're just reading a letter. He also said, I was going to write you magnificent ladies a letter, but I couldn't find the address, I'm sorry to say. I had written it in calligraphy, and I embellished it with Baroque doodles of my creation. And that brings us to a little thing we keep being asked, what is the address? But we think of it as a bit of a scavenger hunt. We're hoping that you will search the website, HowStuffWorks.com, and you will find it and be persistent, and it will reach us. If you're not inclined to your own Baroque doodles, an easier way to reach us is at our Twitter, which is at Missed in History, or on our Facebook fan page. 
Or you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And again, if you want to try and find us, go to our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 